0: Hello, this is Dr. Telly for History 302. Today, we're going to be talking about hip hop and commercialism. A uh, kind of an um, interesting one, as if you can go right now, get onto Moodle, and you can get download the um, PowerPoint "Hip Hop and Commercialism." Uh, the, the tagline: It's not only about fashion, but mainly about fashion. So, <laughs> let's get going. So, if you go over one to intro, you'll see Lil Wayne right there on top of a bunch of money. That's a good feeling, isn't it? I should mention it's not like the early rappers are opposed to making money. Um, that, you know, whenever we talk about how rap becomes very commercialized and very steeped in finances, uh, it's a development that isn't like it's not like the early rappers are like hippies or anything who are like, okay, we 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 you know we forsake all money. Uh, there's plenty of lines in early rap about uh, you know how much money they're making, but it's not necessarily from their rhymes if that makes sense. Like. It's this idea that they're making money, but not necessarily from the music they're making, not, if, not from the rhymes they're spitting. Like, uh, their lyrics are not their moneymakers. Uh, likewise, the corporate world doesn't think all that much about rap music. I mean, if we're talking in the 70s and 80s, uh, they don't really think that, like, you know, young black kids from the Bronx and from the wrong part of the Bronx at that, um, at that angle. It's not going to have all that much money, and people aren't going to be really that interested in emulating, emulating them or viewing them as tastemakers, you know, they they think they're buying to market to. I mean, you know, there's plenty of products marketed to, you know, uh, to the Bronx and different companies and things like that. I mean, you know, targeting even poor African-American or just poor people in general is not unusual for many companies to do. But it's not like we want that to be the face of our brand, if that makes sense. But boy howdy, does that change in time. And I know saying boy howdy makes me lose all sorts of street cred, but whatever. Uh, rap music went from being associated with like the lowest of like poor people to now it's shorthand for wealthy. Um, you know the the financial and lucrative of rap is really part of its whole shtick. Uh, Dr. Dre, for instance, he's now an executive with Apple. Uh, Jay Z partnered with Samsung to release an album. Uh, Snoop Dogg will advertise on pretty much anything. I saw him advertising for pistachios. A uh, rap was viewed. Rap is viewed, I should say. As a commercially acceptable depiction, and rappers themselves are seen as people with a lot of money. So it's a very mutually beneficial relationship. You know, rappers get money from advertising and endorsing all these products, and companies get sales because rappers endorse them. And this is something interesting. This is actually one of the questions that really got me interested in uh, researching rap music, like rap history. It's kind of how it's it's viewed almost like it's impossible for a rapper to sell out, quote-unquote. You see a lot of time in the rock world, like, oh, you know, they they were better before they sold out or, you know, look at them such corporate sellouts because they're marketing themselves or they're allowing themselves to be you know, the the spokesperson for all these products. Um, Once rap music becomes popular, getting big checks for selling products is almost seen as part of the process and a very, very acceptable one at that, a very viable part of the process. More than just part of the process, it was almost viewed as a goal like that. That in and of itself gives you street cred course, for a lot of other genres, doing something like that is viewed as being a sellout. so if you go over one slide, you're gonna see where this all theoretically begins, where this all theoretically begins. The first linkage between hip hop and marketization is the song my Adidas all right my adidas it's it's between run d m c and um and the Adidas and the Adidas shoe company. Uh, And as I've mentioned a lot with early rap stuff, there's a lot of talk, a lot of hearsay, a lot of differing accounts, a lot of, you know, fuzzy-scuzzy chronology about what happens when, okay? So we do know the song came out, we do know it's done by Run-DMC, and we know Russell Simmons had a lot to do with it, let's talk about the story. So here's what we know for a fact. Uh, Run-DMC, as we've talked about before, they're managed by Russell Simmons, who I've talked about extensively, I've read a book about the guy— um And by by the time we get to 1986, Run DMC is pretty big, and uh, he's been delegating a lot more stuff to Lear Cohen. Uh, remember Def Jam, which was his music label, was run pretty much by Russell Simmons, whereas Rush Productions, Rush Management, his, his side business, which was very linked to Def Jam. So even though theoretically Run DMC was not signed to Def Jam, they were part of Rush Management, and they shared one set of books, so it all kind of gets blurry. Lear Cohen was the one that basically Russell Simmons had delegated a lot of stuff to. Pretty much a lot of his business stuff went to Lear Cohen. Most of his creative stuff went to Russell, uh, Rick Rubin. And so according to lore, and this is a story I've heard from multiple different people, multiple different accounts, different chronologies, so this is kind of the amalgamation, the smush-it-all-together story. Um, one night, Russell Simmons was high on PCP. Uh, Russell Simmons liked Angel Dust. He liked it quite a bit. And apparently, while he was doing it, he was ranting about how Run DMC needed to make a song about his Adidas sneakers. He's like, guys, y'all need to make a song, make it about sneakers, make it about how much you love your Adidas. And he's like, and one day, you know, you're going to tell the people of the audience to put their Adidas up in the air. They're going to put their Adidas up in the air. And then, uh, you know, we're going to get a million-dollar endorsement deal. It's going to be so much money from the, the company. It's such good advertisement. They're going to see all these kids are listening to you, and they can't help that to, give you a, to, give you a, to give you some money, give you an endorsement deal. Now, there's another version of the story. The, the sober version of the story is that uh, the people who make the song are actually running DMC, the two guys in the group. Well, there's three guys in the group, but the two rappers in the group. They write on their own, and then uh, Simmons insisted that it is on the album. Uh, in a sober, you know, non-PCP-fueled uh, not-rant, he says basically, Hey, guys, you know, y'all wrote that song about how much you like Adidas Sneakers. Why don't we put it on the album and, and see what's going to happen? So, why it got written is kind of uh, kind of up in the air. What we do know, what we do know, <laughs> is... When Run DMC does their concert in Madison Square Garden, they start doing concerts, or they're ending their, uh, their U.S. tour, uh, they, they do the song, they do the song My Adidas, and at one point they tell the audience, hey, put your Adidas sneakers in the air. And you can go over one slide, you'll see the moment where basically Run DMC, the song had already come out, they're on tour, and they yell, hey, put your sneakers up in the air. Now, according to legend, when Leo Cohen saw this, He said to Russell Simmons, I'm going to go get an endorsement deal, and he called up Adidas immediately. That's the story. Realistically, actuality, because I've interviewed some of these guys, um, this was kind of a setup to begin with. Uh, Lyra Cohen actually had already contacted the Adidas company, uh, brought an executive by the name of Angelo Anastasio. Nice guy. Uh, He does like women's shoes now, but at the time he was like working with Adidas. He is like high in Italian lady shoes now, but at the time he's working with Adidas, the sports company. Uh, the deal was already in the preliminary stages. Basically, Adidas, you know, they were like, "Hey, you know, we're not against promoting products or having endorsements, but it's weird because you know we're a sports company. These aren't sports figures. Are they as popular as you, as you say?" Um, Adidas is a. Um, they're not an American company. They're a German company. They're a German company based in Germany. Uh, Germany. <laughs> doesn't know that much about hip-hop in this time period. Uh, you do have some early 80s German rap groups. Um, I do have a, a, a presentation. I'm not going to do it in this class, but I have this thing about world hip-hop, and German rap is weird. Um, it's very hard to do in German because German has very strict like language rules and like grammar rules. So rap is not that popular in Germany in this time period. So basically, you know, uh, Lear Cohen's been pestering Adidas, like, hey, send over somebody. And, uh, and basically, Angelo Anastasio comes over to watch the concert to see, is he as good as his word? Like, are they going to, you know, are, is the crowd really that big into Adidas? Is, um, you know, do they listen to Run DMC for buying products? So whenever they, they put up their sneakers, basically, Annie, Annie Anastasio was like, okay, yeah, they're good as their word. Uh, There's also a little bit of urban legend here that also, after they did it, they did the song again, and they made a video telling Adidas, give us a million dollars. They probably weren't that crass. Um, If there is a video, I have not seen it, and I have extensively studied this. I I wrote about this incident. I wrote my thesis about this incident, so uh, yeah, yeah. If there is a video, I have not found it. Not to say it doesn't exist, but by most of the accounts... If I were to say the non-legend version of it, the the most realistic idea of what probably happened, It's that Cohen had already been in contact with Anastasio. You know, the the putting up the sneakers was a sign of good faith. You know, basically, are are they as good as their were? What does indeed happen though? If you go over one slot, you know, well, don't go over one side. What does indeed happen though is that Adidas does indeed sign the deal to a million dollar endorsement deal. It's either one million or one point five million. Numbers get fuzzy. Uh, We do know, however, that Russell Simmons and Lear Cohen get most of it. Uh, Basically, it was Cohen gets a third as a finder's fee, Russell Simmons gets a third because he's their group's management, and the group gets a third to split three ways. So each of the members of the group got about hundred grand for it. And the label gets some more. Uh, If you go over to Moodle, I want you to click on the... Uh, Run DMC Adidas commercial. You'll see right there, they start doing a lot of ads for Adidas. A lot of ads for Adidas. They start doing commercials. Uh, you'll see the actual video, it shows like the group uh, getting off of a helicopter, they're wearing their Adidas shoes, and does like the first couple bars of My Adidas. What is interesting, this is the first time that a major brand has willingly linked itself to rap music. As I mentioned earlier, Adidas is like a German company. They're a sports brand. Uh, they they had endorsements, but it was like athletes. Uh, for the first time, it's, this is like a lifestyle. This is, you know, Run DMC, they are not athletes. You know, you do not have to wear Adidas shoes to wrap uh, for, for a, like, equipment purpose. Does that make sense? Like, you might need to wear Adidas shoes to play soccer, because they make soccer shoes, but this is like we're wearing lifestyle shoes. So it's showing now that rap is more than just music. It's, it's a style that defines one's identity, but also one that could be purchased. Now, having mu- musicians linked to products wasn't new, but was a little bit unique about this was that it was Run-DMC that had done the pursuing. Usually, it's companies going to musicians or going to like entertainers, celebrities, and saying, hey, please wear this. You know, We want you to wear this. We'll pay you money. Uh, this is interesting in that Run-DMC was the one that was doing the pursuing. Run DMC was the one, or Russell Simmons, more than likely Lear Cohen. But theoretically, I mean, Run DMC, they made the rap before they ever had the endorsement deal. Uh, the, rap was the, the rap song was the reason why they got the endorsement deal. And so now it's seen that rap music could be the source of commercial products. It could be something that's advertised. A weirdly early one from 1988, if you've ever won, is Fruity Pebbles. I never thought you'd ever see this, which is weird. And actually, it sticks with the rap thing for quite a while. You click on the Fruity Pebbles wrap, you'll see this 30-second commercial. Uh, Fruity Pebbles is a post-serial. If you've never heard of Fruity Pebbles, I'm surprised. Uh, it already had a spokesperson, a cartoon spokesperson in the form of the Flintstones, generally Fred and Barney. You might have seen the commercials. Uh, you know, Fred eats his Fruity Pebbles, but Barney has to think up ways to you know trick him. Uh, the show is weird because it's the the, the Flintstones. Uh, new episodes had not been made in the 80s for quite a while. Uh, They stopped making new episodes of the Flintstones in the 70s, and the Flintstones itself is a knockoff of the Honeymooners, which is a 1950s show. Um, If you ever see the Honeymooners, it is the Flintstones, except the Honeymooners takes place in contemporary 1950s America, whereas the Flintstones are Stone Age people. You know, they're, they're like cavemen. Anyway, if you watch the commercial, you'll see it's a commercial where Barney, who's based off of a 1950s character living in the Stone Age, is going to do rap music, the hip new 80s novelty of rap music, to try to sneak the Fruity Pebbles away from Fred. Uh, Mainly done for novelty, not showing uh, any allegiance to the hip-hop culture. I, I would never say that post-serial is, um, is is hip-hop by any nature. It wasn't like this was going to define the brand. However, they're, they kind of stick with this hip-hop thing for a while. Uh, there's weird connection between... Flintstones and cereal and rap for a while. Just in their commercials, they do a lot of rapping, which is weird. And it goes on through the '90s, even like with Post cereal sponsoring some different rap groups. Like I remember, they had a commercial like there was a there was like a mixtape or a mix CD that came in the boxes of Fruity Pebbles, or it was like you had to send in like proof of purchases. Like if you send in three proof of purchases, uh, you can get this album. And it's like, you know, they'd be like, hey, Barney, you can listen to the new salt and Pepper song. It was so weird that it's like these are cartoons from the 50s about a 50s parody of Stone Age people talking about the hip new rap groups of the 90s. Now, the first brand to really target hip-hop culture and not the other way around in Adidas, uh, the first one that was like, hey, we're going to base our entire brand around the hip-hop mindset, the hip-hop lifestyle, is St. Ives Malt Liquor. If you go over one slide, you're going to see the Tupac and Snoop Dogg uh, St. Ives commercial. Well, not commercial, but ad. Uh, malt Liquor, if you don't know Malt Liquor, uh, it's a very cheap form of alcohol, I should mention. Very cheap. Uh, fairly high alcohol content in, uh, in, in compared to beer. Uh, generally, beer has less alcohol than um, than Malt Liquor does. Malt Liquor has a bit more alcohol. And it's usually sold in very large quantities. This is like your 40-ounce, for instance, is jelly malt liquor. Now, malt liquor is also cheaper than beer. It's also cheaper than beer. It's quite cheap. Um, it's, it's usually the cheapest form of alcohol and usually some of the most potent. Now, originally it started out, it was made after World War II, uh, being sold mainly to white customers. It was really targeted as like kind of a, as a, a working man's drink because uh, it is so cheap. Um, well, you know, they're not really opposed to black customers. Um, after the civil rights movements, you have more companies start di- marketing directly to black customers and you know, commercials, ads in jet magazines, things like that, you know, Ford advertising, like, you know, an African-American family, uh, just for African-Americans in like jet magazine or something. Or later on, we're like, you know, BET, this is much later on though, BET will have commercials from like McDonald's or whatever, which is like a different, more like, uh, African-American centric version of their commercial. But it's not until the 80s, if you go over one more, that you have malt liquor really being marketed directly towards lower-income inner-city areas. Uh, Malt liquor gets even cheaper, actually, um, because beer gets cheaper. Um, In the 70s, beer starts consolidating so that there's more national beer makers, and the beers as a whole tend to get cheaper. And uh, this, in turn, like... More people start drinking beer, which makes the malt liquor agencies have to go cheaper because you, there. It's not a high class drink, but it's. I, I don't drink malt liquor. I, I never have, but from what I hear, it's its main um, benefit is that it's very potent. Uh, you can drink a lot of it because there's a ton of it, and it gets you really drunk because there's a lot more alcohol than there's in beer. So you start getting ads like kind of directly towards like lower income inner city areas. People like Billy D. Williams. You'll see right there the infamous Colt forty five ad. Colt forty five malt liquor works every time. That's my horrible Billy D. impression. Uh, Billy D. He's he's Lando Calrissian, which is probably the reason most of you nerds know him. But he'd done a lot of other things. So he was a fairly popular black movie star, and uh, things like uh, pretty much every Motown movie star, Billy T. Williams. These ads are a million success. Uh, They're they're really like, how are we going to appeal to, like, you know, inner city people who may not have the highest disposable income? How are we going to get younger customers? Uh, You know, when you're advertising with someone like Billy D. Williams, that's more of a middle-aged thing. Uh, They found middle-aged people are probably more inclined to have a little bit more spending money, so they may not buy malt liquor because they could buy beer or better alcohol. Uh, Malt liquor is not the greatest alcohol out there. So in in 1990, uh, Saint Ives, which is a malt liquor from a, a distributor from a hip hop not a hip hop distributor but a, from an alcohol distributor, uh, they really want to make uh, they want to they really want to get black customers. Uh, they they try to do like one with some Motown people. The, you know, kids don't listen to Motown by the time we get to the early 90s. It's like 1990 1991. They decide, you know what? We need to really advertise with this hip hop thing that all the kids are listening to. Like. If you go to the inner cities, you know, the people they're trying to get, they're trying to target, you know, inner cities. That's their audience. So they say, you know what? We're going to try to target these consumers. You know, that's our customer base. We want more younger people drinking malt liquor. So they go with DJ Poo. Uh, DJ Pooh, seen here on Friday. He's a big, not big time, but he's a very well-respected producer. Um, not even respected in this time period. He actually gets more respect from his saint eyed stuff. He's a journeyman yeoman producer on the west coast all right he's he's produces a lot of stuff, not a big name, but pretty well connected and they're like hey d j pooh uh we don't know how to advertise hip hop, so we're gonna give you a ton of creative control um you know our advertising executives are like you know older people or white people, and like we're trying to you know, we figure you're going to be our, our our way into this. You know, young black urban market. They they figure this guy figured out. So DJ Poo contacts pretty much everybody he knows and like really starts leaning upon like everybody in the hip hop world to make a bunch of different spots for the liquor. If you go over one side, you'll just see a few of these uh, few of these instances. Who all is part of this? Well, you got Ice Cube, the Lynch Mob, Snoop Dogg, Tupac Shakur, Warren G, Nate Dogg, King T. EPMD, Key, B and Rakim, Cypress Hill, the Notorious B.I.G., the Ghetto Boys, MC8, and the Wu-Tang Clan. By the way, the Wu-Tang Clan's um, uh, jingle for this, like the song that they do for St. Ides, which, like I said, was a jingle in 1994, was uh, ranked in Complex Magazine as one of the crew's all-time top 100 songs. So like, this is one of the best 100 songs by Wu-Tang is this 30-second jingle. And if you go to Moodle, you're going to see the Saint Ides commercials. Uh, you can, I have I think there's like a few minutes worth of them. Um, they were everywhere in the 90s. Uh, often shown on programming designed to reach like youth and others who might want to see hip hop programming. Um, the early 90s is really the period. I mean, I'm alive during this time period. We don't own a TV in the house, but I watch TV from time to time at friends' houses or during the Olympics because that's when my parents would run a TV for the month. Um. You'd, I always associate them with the Fox Network uh, in the early '90s. The Fox Network—that's like where you have *In Living Color* and the Wans Brothers show, and a lot of like shows that were designed to this kind of urban mindset. Uh, you would always see St. Ives commercials. Uh, these commercials that you know, whenever you watch them, you're, you're, I'm going to get—I get all the nostalgia from them. And the ads also show like a hip-hop lifestyle. It's not just the music. It's like, hey, what are you doing? Where you drinking St. Ives? It's pretty relaxed. Uh, you know, you're playing dominoes, you're uh, barbecuing in the backyard, you're hanging out, you're partying, pretty chilly. I mean, there's there's one song where Snoop Dogg says a million times how blueberry is his favorite flavor. And ironically, the uh, the first bit of controversy about St. Ides actually comes within the hip-hop community. Uh, one of the first ads for St. Ides was a radio ad in 1991 that used a sample of the Public Enemy song Bring the Noise Without Permission. Now, here's the thing. You know, that's not the most unheard of thing. It's a big company, but Public Enemy did not like malt liquor. Uh, They actually recorded a song called One Million Bottle Bags, which basically said how bad malt liquor was for the black community. As I said, malt liquor is very um, alcoholic. It's not good for you. I mean, it's not like any alcohol is really good for you, but malt liquor is especially not good for you. And basically Chuck D is like, oh hell no. You know, I hate malt liquor. I make songs about malt liquor. Yeah, i sorry, I make songs about how much I hate malt liquor and how it's bad for black people in general. You're not going to use my, you know, song without my permission, without paying me any money to advertise your malt liquor. And he actually sues the company for five million dollars. It was settled out of court for an undisclosed sum. Uh, also, I mean, I did mention that malt liquor has a lot more alcohol than beer, so it does get under a lot of scrutiny. Also, there's the issue whether the ads are being targeted to children or not, uh, to advertise to children, uh, a vice like alcohol is a huge no, no, it's a huge no, no. Um, however, you know, the, the advertise, the St. Ives is saying, no, we're just using, um, hip hop stuff. But hip-hop was seen for young people. We, we, I talked earlier about pop rap and how it was seen, but no, hip-hop was okay for kids. It was, it was viewed as kiddie stuff. That's not how some people interpret it. Uh, remember how I said it was on the Fox network? I think a good parallel to this is The Simpsons. Uh, the Simpsons, which is still on, I, I can't believe it. The Simpsons is 30 years old. I'm sure y'all never really watched it because it probably wasn't the best show whenever y'all were growing up because it was you know well within its twentieth or so season. But whenever I was a kid in the 1990s, like The Simpsons was the hottest thing out there, and you know it was thought of as a kids' show because it was a cartoon. But there was a lot of controversy because there's some things which about The Simpsons which they seem just like you know (laughs) tragically not tragically but just like almost quaint by like the controversies of early Simpsons compared to nowadays. But it's like, you know, The Simpsons are not a a children's show. Why is it a cartoon? Just like, you know, St. Ives ads, you know, the alcohol is not for children. Why is it being in hip-hop ads? That's a bit of a gray area. So by the time we get to 1994, 1995, which is when the Wu-Tang ad came out, St. Ives was very accepted as a hip-hop brand, with a lot of its appeal coming from affiliation for the genre. Um, I remember... uh, Friend of mine, you know, she was like, you know, I remember like drinking malt liquor at my, uh, uh, with my lacrosse team at her private school up in like, uh, north in the Northeast. And she's like, we felt like such gangsters because, you know, we were drinking it just like the rappers did on the St. Ives video. And it's, you know, she's very like country club, you know, Massachusetts suburbs of Boston, you know, lacrosse player for crying out loud. And it's like, oh, we felt like such gangsters in the early 90s because we were drinking, you know, St. Ides. This also kind of begins the beginning of hip-hop being used for all sorts of products. Uh, start using a lot more hip-hop elements, really dip- going with the hip-hop culture. Not like with the um, Fruity Pebbles ad, which is basically just, you know, we're using it as a novelty. But, like, we want to really get into the hip-hop aesthetic. You see that with um, Sprite, weirdly enough. Sprite really goes whole hog on this. Uh, this idea that you know there's this like kind of hip hop urban element of sprite, which is just a lemon lime soda if you haven't you've had sprite, Jeez. uh hip hop was seen as a way to advertise towards a young black and here's the phrase I want you to know, not phrase but word cool, a cool market it's basically this idea that hey, we're advertising for these people because it's seen as cool uh, you cannot quantify cool you you need to like understand that just the concept of being cool is something that all products want, but it's so hard to define. And so pretty much they thought, hip-hop is cool. Having you know your products be done in a hip-hop fashion is cool. But even though rappers are making endorsement money, it's not the same as ownership money, if that makes sense. Like, yes, um, you might get paid a little bit of money, even a good bit of money, for doing a Sprite ad, but that's nothing compared to the amount of money that Coca-Cola is going to make from the Sprite. And there's always been this idea of making products specifically for the rap set. Particularly if you go over one that has to do with fashion. Uh, Fashion had always been part of rap music. Uh, Fashion had always been part of rap music. Um, Pretty big part of hip-hop dating back to the 70s. Uh, Rap has its own aesthetic. Uh, Generally, though, it was done by purchasing already-made products that weren't necessarily for rap music. Uh, Think of like a a Kangol hat or Adidas shoes. Uh, Those were not specifically made for rap music, but it's something that rappers use to make a streetwear aesthetic. Uh, Streetwear is a thing, but it's not really steeped in rap, if that makes sense. It's a product that becomes viewed as rap, but it's not like a product that's made for hip-hop. Particularly when it comes to fashion. There's a lot of fashion elements which were kind of co-opted as hip-hop elements. Uh, It's not only until 1989 when you have Cross Colors. You can see Cross Colors there with its logo. Uh, A clothing brand designed specifically with hip-hop and rap in mind. Uh, This wasn't clothes made for something else co-opted by the rap scene, but rather something made with rap in mind. And it showed that young black people were deemed financially viable. Like, there's money to be made within this community. Um, You know, even though advertisers often overlook them as like, this should be our main point of marketing, or this should be what we base our brand around, you know, yeah, yes, like cigarette companies and cola companies and food companies, every type of company advertises in the inner city, but it's not like our brand is built upon around this. Uh, Cross Colors was the first one to be like, we are a hip-hop brand. Uh, the clothing was made by a guy by the name of Carl Jones. Uh, Carl Jones. Uh, he was a black fashion student. He actually got a start, weirdly enough, in surfwear, uh, clothing for surfers. And you know what? The more I think about it, it's a... Decent example of an alt- another alternative lifestyle that became a commodity in a comparison to hip-hop. Just this idea of, like, surfer aesthetic. You know, we've had surfers long before we had surf clothes and, like, the surf lifestyle stuff. You know, there, there have been dudes surfing in California long before they had Billabong and Sun and the other surfing clothing companies. They wore clothing before, but then, like, it became part of this aesthetic. I, I really think the surf culture is a pretty good earlier comparison to hip-hop. Now, I, I should rate Cross Colors was a, a pretty big, uh, you know, uh, sorry, uh, Carl Jones. He he uses the company to really reflect rap. He gives a lot of positive messages. You can see the Clothing about Prejudice, which appeared on pretty much every single one of their things. Uh, really known for its baggy pants and especially its use of colors. Uh, Cross Colors' colors are very bright, very, very vibrant, very vivid. If you go over one more slide, you will see the 90s. Um, whenever I think of the 90s and growing as a kid is in the 90s, uh, this is what I think of. A lot of bright colors, a lot of, lot of bright colors. Everybody there is wearing cross colors, uh, especially that one of TLC, wearing so much cross color stuff right there. That was the aesthetic they're going for. It's very 90s, very colorful. Um, it's a very decent-sized hit. It, it, it spawns a million copycats. Um, it spawns a million copycats, uh, it was marketed towards hip-hop, and it was also fairly cheap. Uh, fairly obtainable, I should say. Um, you know, these are not the most expensive designer clothes out there, and they're worn by a lot of different rappers. This is also extremely copied with uh, bootlegs. Uh, they have so many bootlegs, so many like, rip-offs of it. Uh, the one that was a huge thing for in the 90s for a while is, if you go over one more, you will see, and these things were everywhere, the Looney Tunes Hip-Hop bootleg these these were the only two like examples i could find online they had tons of these back then where it's like the looney tunes characters done in like a hip-hop style like wearing streetwear. a lot of times they'd have like a local sports team i'm like there's no way in hell they got the licensing rights for this because get a looney tune character and a sports team like that's a ton of money and these things were available for like you know you, you bought them in your local convenience store because they, these were bootleg. These were not, like, legitimate shirts. I don't know who made them, but I can assess that they were everywhere. Like, looking at these shirts right now reminds me of elementary school. Like, these kids wore these all the time in elementary school. Kind of the, these bootleg, cross-colors-looking things. Um, I don't know what's going on in Porky Pig, with Porky Pig in that picture. I... That's the one that always, like, he he looks way too sassy in that picture. Um, Yeah, but weird hip-hop bootleg Looney Tunes were all over the place. Now, although Cross Colors was the first, the first one that became a mainstay for a while and made, like, really big money was FUBU. Go over one slide, you will see the least appropriate picture of FUBU ever. Uh, Whenever I was looking for pictures for FUBU, I found this picture of NSYNC wearing FUBU in the late 90s. And I thought, this is so inappropriate, I can't not use it. Uh, FUBU is just, it's, if you go over one slide, you'll see Damon John. Damon John was just a kid from Queens, New York. He had a sight setting on urban, making it big with the urban apparel market. Uh, first time he ever really had success was in 1989. He made $800 in one day, making a bunch of wool hats that he had a friend sew up for him. Uh, when he noticed kind of that people are wearing a lot of screen print T-shirts, that's a pretty easy way to make a T-shirt. You just have a T-shirt and you screen-print it. Basically, it's it's done cheaply, fairly quickly. Uh, he really actually cuts his teeth in 1992, whenever he um, makes some screen shirts, uh, screen-printed shirts for the uh, Rodney King riots and also the arrest of Mike Tyson. Basically, he's one of those guys who's, like, selling T-shirts during uh, riots, which happened really in the 90s. And and he does this interview with the Washington Post. It's interesting, where basically Damon John admits that the shirt set off a light bulb in his young, very entrepreneurially-driven mind that, quote, It showed me something about the reason people buy clothes, that when there's an emotional connection, products sell quicker. And that's why I started thinking about the concept of for us, by us. FUBU is an acronym. For us by us. People buy clothes when there's an emotional connection. It's part of a larger identity. And basically by saying it's for us, by us, it's like for African Americans, by African Americans. This is actually kind of unique in the post-Jim Crow world. Uh, There is a complicated history, which I do not have time to get into. But like before, during, sorry, Before Jim Crow went away, like, during Jim Crow, some products were owned by African-Americans. Like, they they had specific products, specific businesses that were done because of segregation. Like, you have to have the black version of it because you can't go to the white one. After Jim Crow falls down, after, you know, products start getting marketed towards everybody, uh, most companies try to be somewhat racially ambiguous, They might advertise primarily to white persons, but it's not like they overlook black persons or say, you know, we're only a white company. Uh, Think like a car company. I think that's the best example. Or like a soda company. You know, uh, there's no, like, black car, white car. You know, it's not like, well, we have the Fords and then we have the black Fords. Or like, here's white Coca-Cola and black Coca-Cola. It's all the same Coca-Cola. They might advertise it a little bit differently in different neighborhoods, but it's not like there's a separate product or, like, a separate industry. Uh... But FUBU is kind of going, I don't want to say it's regressing, but it's like going back to an older mindset of like, no, we're making this product for us, by us. And basically, Damon John's saying, you need to have an emotional connection to the product. Uh, the first celebrity endorser was uh, LL Cool J. He does it in 1993. He stays with him for a long time. Uh, by 1997, uh, FUBU was making $40 million. Uh, by 1998, over $350 million. Like, FUBU got really big really quick. Probably the coolest moment that happens with this, if you go over to the uh, secret FUBU ad, in 1999, um, LL Cool J is in a Gap ad. If you go over one side, you'll see him. Basically, he's, uh, LL Cool J has been signed by the Gap to like sell jeans. He's supposed to be doing a freestyle. Uh, in the ad, where it's basically it's supposed to be for the Gap, he's wearing a FUBU hat. He's wearing a FUBU hat in the ad, even though it's a commercial for the Gap. And even says, and by the way, for us, buy us, on the low. Like, basically he says, I know I'm in an ad for the Gap, this white company, but hold on, y'all, I'm wearing a FUBU hat. I can't believe the Gap people didn't notice that. And he says, for us, buy us. Basically, that is FUBU's tagline. So pretty much, FUBU just got, like, Gap money to do some advertising without paying a dime. And I can't believe the Gap didn't catch that. Like, even once they started screening it, they never pulled it. Uh, you'll see, on the, if you click on it, if you click on Moodle, you're going to see the Forest Bias ad. Um, you know, mainstream stores like Macy's and Nordstrom start selling FUBU. Uh, people like NSYNC feel comfortable wearing FUBU, which they shouldn't. Uh, if you ever, uh, by the time John himself becomes pretty successful, now he's on Shark Tank as a generic rich guy. He doesn't even do the fashion stuff too much. There are other lines. I'll talk to you a little bit about some of the other lines. Uh, Fat Farm was another one. If you go over one slide, you'll see Fat Farm done by Russell Simmons, who's the Russell Simmons of being Russell Simmons. Um, His main interest in fashion, um, he was honest with me one time, was because he was interested in models. (laughs) He was like, eh, models are hot. I want to be around models. He he later married a model. Um, At first, it was sold to just his little uh, small Soho shop in New York. Uh, he put a ton of money into it. Uh, it lost ten million dollars for the first six years. Basically, he put ten million dollars in it for the first six years before it finally made it made some money. Um, it, it had a couple good years. It was never as big as some of the other brands. Um, I blame the name, frankly. Russell Simmons doesn't agree with me, but I think you know, Fat Farm is a name for like from the fifties and stuff, for like like a weight loss camp, and still people have the connotation of like it's for big and tall people. Uh, you know, any clothes with, like, fat it, you're thinking, like, oh, it's a, it's a big and tall brand. The thing that really frustrated Russell Simmons, and he tried hard to get around this with his American Classics brand later on, was that it kept being pigeonholed as ethnic. Like, this is a rap clothing line. He's like, no, I want this to be an everybody clothing line because he wants the mainstream money. If there's one thing consistent about Russell Simmons, he likes mainstream money. Okay, so that is Fat Farm. If you go over one more, you will see Sean John. Sean John, that was Puff Daddy's company, or Puffy, um, whatever you want to call him. Uh, Sean John, that, that, that Sean John right there. Uh, he'd been interested in fashion for quite a while. It does okay for a while, but oversaturation happens. Uh, he does walk a line, though, of trying to be both high class and obtainable. Uh, we're going to talk about that a little bit later when we talk about just the, the whole aspect of obtainability versus high classness when it comes to hip hop. Another one actually is fairly successful is Rockaware. Uh, Jay Z is along with Damon Dash and Kareem; they're the guys who're behind Rockaware, part of the whole Rocka family. Uh, Jay Z is interesting because in his earlier stuff, he was you know ha- talking and talking a lot in his songs about Rockefeller clothing, Our Rockaware clothing ha- held in all of his music videos. Uh, in 2007, he sells the line; he actually sells his interest in the company. For $200 million. But he stays on as a brand ambassador. Uh, the thing is, as soon as he becomes a brand ambassador, he stops promoting it in his songs. And he doesn't really wear it all that much. So pretty much he got his $200 million, He's He's happy. I should also mention Jay-Z is known for his partnerships with multiple companies. Uh, some are luxury, some are not. Um, his own ownership, such as Tidal, has been more problematic. Uh, the, another one is Apple Bottoms, done by Nelly, who we talked about last week. Uh, I think this is part of his uh make himself, you know, redeem himself uh public relations to with women. Uh it is a it is a women's jean company. It's a women's jeans company. Um supposedly done for 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 curvy gals, uh girls with, with more curvy behinds was his rationale behind it. Uh it is interesting that it's a hip-hop label. You know, he's a rapper who's not making clothes for other male rappers, he's making it for women. Um I think the most famous thing ever happened to this was how they get name-checked in the apple-bottom jeans and the boots with the with the fur. The whole club was looking at her line. Now, there sometimes clothing companies don't like the attention, though. Sometimes a company is going to be linked with rap music, and the company doesn't know what to do with it. Sometimes they embrace it. For instance, I don't have a slide about it, but Tommy Hilfiger. Uh, Tommy Hilfiger clothing started out as just, like, normal clothing. Uh, not normal clothing, but, like, not directly, you know, marketed towards rap aesthetics, but then some rappers liked it. Uh Tommy Hilfiger kind of leaned into it. He's like, okay, people like Tommy Hilfiger, rappers like it, I like them too. But sometimes some brands don't like the attention. And a prime example if you ever one is Cristal. Uh, Cristal is a very high-end French champagne. Uh, some of the earliest ones were done for like, you know, Kings of France when they still had Kings of France before they cut off all their heads. Uh Crystal fit the rapper aesthetic fairly well. It was expensive, it was gold, it was flashy, it had the appearance of luxury. Uh, While a direct connection or agreement between the makers of the alcohol and various rappers was never explicitly stated, the association between the two became assumed. An afterthought with the liquor becoming just another demonstration of excess and wealth. If you go over one slide, you're going to see crystal was used a lot in rap videos. Like, a lot in rap videos. It's just like, hey, here's how rich we are. We can use you know a bottle of champagne, which is several thousand dollars, to just pour on nothing, or we'll pour it on a woman, or we'll just you know just just, just extravagant wealth. And even though this isn't like Adidas or anything where they uh, they have an you know a, a endorsement deal in place, uh, people just kind of assume, hey, Cristal knows about it. You know they're they're okay with being associated with rappers, and rappers are okay with associating with Cristal. However, in 2006, um, in an interview with The Economist, Frederick Razan, which was one of Kristal's managing it directors, commented on Kristal's place of esteem with the in the hip hop community, viewing the association with curiosity and serenity. When he asked if the, when he was asked if the linkage between the two could possibly hurt the brand, he responded, "That's a good question, but what would we, we can do, we can't forbid people from buying it. I'm sure Don Perriano or Krug would be delighted to have their business." While not explicitly stating he did not desire rappers' business, the tone of his remarks replied that Razan was speaking for the entire Cristal organization and that he's resigned to the esteem that the liquor held. Basie's like, you know what, we're not crazy about it, but what can you do? You know, there's other expensive champagne brands out there, but they're not going to do it. While the hip-hop culture felt the appearance of Cristal was the perception of wealth, Razan's comments seemed to signify that Cristal reviewed the association with rappers as undesired and sullying to the company's reputation. Due to the response to Razan's comments, Jay-Z would re- release a press release of his own saying, quote, It has come to my attention that the managing director of Chris Style views the hip-hop culture as unwelcome attention. I view his comments as racist and will no longer support any of his products in my various brands, including the 4040 Club, nor in my personal life. Carter also called for a hip-hop-wide boycott of the beverage due to the exposed racial nature of Razan's comments. Carter hoped that the loss of revenue and esteem for Cristal would punish the company. Furthermore, Carter replaced his traditional esteem with Cristal with Armand de Brock. We'll talk about that in a second. Although Razan later apologized, the damage was done and Cristal was out. So basically, Jay-Z is like, hey, we're going to have a boycott, and it pretty much works. He does a lot of songs where he says that Cristal's racist. In the Show Me What You Got video, he starts showing that gold bottle of the Ace of Spade. That's Armand de Brock. If you watch the Show Me What You Got video, he does a great part where, like, a waiter comes up with a bottle of Crystal, he waves it off, and then he brings out a bottle, another expensive bottle of champagne that he later buys. (laughs) Like, the company. He later buys the company, so that's his company. And although Roseanne later apologized for it, like I said, the damage was done, Cristal is out. And this demonstrates the thin line between favorable and unfavorable with luxury brands. Although rappers are viewed as wealthy, the whole class element comes into play. Yes, rap music was making companies money, but was it the right sort of attention? You know, now that rap has become shorthand for wealth, it's now like, is this really the right kind of attention? But it really shows just how far things had come from the early days of the genre. But still, it's kind of this Schrodinger's cat version of wealth or affluence. You know, where's the line? Are rappers poor people? Or are they rich people? You know, can they have a luxury brand? That's a problem that Sean John had for a while. Uh, Sean John, uh, the Puff Daddy's label, Puff Daddy's clothing line, I should say, tried to go too high in. They want to say we're the highest in stuff, but it's like, well, you're, you know, you're a hip hop brand. You should be obtainable for regular people because that's the regular people who listen to your stuff. So that's that's this kind of thing. It's like, you know, is it the wealth of the rappers or is it the supposed not as wealth of the audience base? So just think about this kind of overlap. Like I said, this is kind of a thematic one. Mainly, I just want you to talk about that overlap. So with that, this is Dr. Tully for History 304, talking about rap music and commercialism. It wasn't just about fashion. It was a lot about fashion.